Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And now we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow chundering unicorns. Welcome once again to Beer Sec Ops, powered by Aqua Security. I'm your host, Steve Jaguer, and we are in this episode continuing our string of fantastic guests, this time with none other than Gene Kim. You'll know Gene. He is the author of The Phoenix Project. His recent book is The Unicorn Project, but in between all of that, he has done some fantastic things and some incredible research into the community, including the State of DevOps report. That report, 27,000 survey respondents, six years in the making, some incredible work that he's been doing, and I get to talk to him, which is incredible. The Unicorn Project is a fantastic book. It's worth a good read. We hope we don't spoil it too much, but instead act as a teaser. But we talk about the five ideals, the four types of work. We touch on the three ways of, of DevOps, and we get into it. This is a special podcast because it's quite long. It's almost an hour, and I gotta tell you, the time flew by. I had so many notes, uh, and Gene was a fantastic guest, super patient, and the stories he tells and the experiences he has I would say anyone from any walk of technology life, be that dev, DevOps, operations, uh, security, and even the business stakeholders who are responsible for these people have a lot to learn by reading the Unicorn Project and of course the Phoenix Project in tandem if you can. So with that, I'm very pleased to introduce Gene Kim. Okay. Gene Kim, thank you very much for doing this podcast. Uh, <laughs> you may or you may or may not know this is not this is number nine of of the Aqua Security Beer Psychops podcast. Congratulations, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's um, yeah, there's not a lot of podcasts that are based out of this side of the pond. A lot of the good ones come out of the states and, and I'm sure Canada, but it's it, that was kind of the motivation for for doing this and. Uh, and I found that mostly I've been talking to people who are kind of everything, kind of anyone in the DevOps and cloud native space. It's been very um, void of security, to be honest. And, and by the way, congratulations on having Kelsey Hightower on last. Uh, it's a tough act to follow, but uh, man, what a, what a great episode that was. <laughs> Sorry, no pressure. Yeah, it was. It was. He, yeah, he's extremely articulate. And uh, that was an absolute pleasure to, to get an opportunity to speak to him. So, it, but you are, uh, you are a little bit intimidating as well. Um, I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest to say I have, I have notes. It's funny you mentioned you had notes. I started writing notes when I started reading the unicorn project and <laughs> I have six pages of notes, thus rendering them all useless. Cause there's no way I'm going to get through them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. My favorite books are the ones where a third of the pages are dog eared because it was uh, something so important on one of those pages. And, uh, uh, every decade, I read a couple of those, and uh, those are absolutely my favorites. I, I totally agree with you that the I measure the how good a book was by you know how many things I want to be able to reference later. Well, yeah, and and what's interesting about the eBooks is that you can sort of virtually <laughs> bookmark and highlight pieces. So I've even got more. I mean, there's more than more than enough. 
Um, so I think everybody knows who you are. I think if I were to go into a, an intro bit, it would be it would probably be something you could do really quickly because you'd probably done it a hundred times over the past <laughs> few months. So, but if you if I guess what I'm curious about is how many podcasts have you done promoting the Unicorn Project? Say over the last two three months. No, I don't think is that. It, maybe, maybe about ten, uh, maybe fifteen oh, wow, of them. Okay. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's it's the most fun part of it was actually so many of them. Uh, it was really just reconnecting with friends and uh, uh, offering it was podcasts that I was uh, I've been on uh, before in years past. So it was uh, it was been a really great experience just uh, hanging out with friends and talking about things that uh, we both have in common uh, as been, areas of passion. Yeah, it's been well. I've been listening to quite a few to try and prepare for this one. And actually, to any, anybody listening to this one, I highly recommend going and listening to all the other ones because <laughs> while there, really, while there is overlap in some of the things you discuss, of course, because you've you've got a book out with a lot of very key points that need discussing, but you go in different directions and different discussions lead to different conclusions. So it's it's actually really was really interesting, and I didn't get bored. Interestingly, going through the ones you've done previously, so it was great. Yeah, and what I love about uh, DevOps is that yeah, you know, people come from so many different backgrounds. Whether it's uh, development, QA, information security, uh, operations, and uh, you know, just the interests are different from each perspective. And uh, it is so fun and uh, uh, often so provocative, and uh, just fun to uh, talk about those different areas with these uh, you know people of you know people with different deep expertise from these different areas. So. Uh, it's interesting that you make that observation because I had that was also my similar observation going through this uh, last couple of months. And well, I come from, I guess, a sort of development first, followed by security, but then with a sort of middle section in my life where I had to deal with business issues. So when I went through the when I if I go back in time when I went through the Phoenix project and we discussed this a little bit a week ago when we were preparing, I, how I was kind of jumping up and down with excitement about how you can take lessons from the manufacturing industry and draw them into software. And I, and, yeah. I, I, and I was a little embarrassed, actually, because I'd done a webinar saying that and I hadn't realized the Phoenix Project was out there and been, been so comprehensive. But I moving to the Unicorn Project, I, I had the same jump up and down enthusiasm, I can tell you now, because it was there was so many moments to relate to that this is where all my notes came from, Gene. <laughs> but can I ask you about, I have a whole lot of key moments and I'd like to kind of go in reverse. Do you mind if I take the book in re- a little bit of reverse? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, uh, okay. absolutely. I am in your hands, uh, good sir. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I would like to talk about the, the, the concept of core versus context first, if you don't mm. mind. Do you mind defining what that is um, rather than me wreck it? Yeah, for sure. Core versus context. So that frames the fifth of the five ideals. And uh, it's, uh, so it's customer focus. And that, that notion of core versus context comes from Dr. Geoffrey Moore in his uh, amazing book, uh, Zones to Win. And uh, essentially uh, what Dr. Geoffrey Moore, uh, who famously wrote uh, the book Crossing the Chasm about innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. Uh, which is sort of the Gaussian distribution of market adoption of any uh, new idea uh, or new successful idea. Uh, so, you know, he's famous for that for sure. But I think the, the more significant work that's relevant to the work that we do every day is uh, uh, the ideas in Zones to Win. And, and he has this wonderful concept of core versus context. And so core represent uh, the things we do as an organization uh, that build durable, competitive business advantage uh, that customers care about, uh, that they're willing to pay for. And then uh, he defines context as everything else. 
And uh, yeah. so these are things that are important. They may be mission critical. Uh, but uh, Dr. Moore writes about how the risk is that in many organizations, context starves core. In other words, uh, uh, companies are underinvesting in core because they're drowning in uh, context. And so these are things like might be uh, mission critical systems like payroll or ERP systems or uh, uh, running cafeteria systems and uh, running shuttles between buildings as uh Jeffrey Snover said from Microsoft, yeah, these are important things, but uh, these are not what customers pay for. And so uh, the core notion of core versus context, uh, it uses an instrument in the Unicorn Project to uh, be a way to paint the contrast of, you know, are the things that we do every day, you know, as technologists or anywhere in the business, is this something that uh, customers uh, pay for? Is it, uh, does it create lasting durable business advantage or is it part of context? And I think that really brings up the question is that should we do that? Should we actually be doing this work or is this something that can be safely, um, you know, outsourced or consumed as a software as a service or so forth? And so, um, yeah, part of the last part of the unicorn project was kind of this kind of unflinching, uh, examination of that. And, um, you know, I think for so many silo, functional silos, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, we really need functional silo managers to really look at, you know, it from the customer's point of view, right? The, the people giving the organization money for services rendered or whatever, as opposed to the more parochial silo goals. Hmm. It, it felt in the book that it was a moment of, of clarity when they moved from sort of being reactive to proactive and ensuring the success, the longer term success of the company. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And this was so much inspired by uh, a day that uh, a friend of mine, Dr. McCurson, and I, we spent at uh, CompuWare. Uh, we learned so much from Chris O'Malley, the CEO there. And, you know, uh, one of the most amazing kind of things we saw in that day was this data center uh, that was kind of first on the agenda. And, uh, you know, you walk into this data center and essentially empty, right? You have two Z mainframes <laughs> and then <laughs> you have... Uh, you know, this vast, you know, uh, thousands of square feet of uh, floor uh, that's, you have like a, like a murder scene where you have tape, um, you know, around <laughs> the spaces where the racks used to be. And then in the middle is a tombstone uh, with uh, that names the business processes and application that used to run there, as well as how much money they saved by getting rid of it. And, wow. you know, the, the reason they did this was uh, that uh, Chris O'Malley pushed for this was that, it enabled them to reallocate $8 million from context into core. So no one, act, you know, customers don't care about how good the payroll systems are or how good the uh, their internal ERP systems are. Instead, uh, they do care about what R&D can create for them to uh, solve the problem. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that really served as an inspiration of exactly, as he said, uh, kind of this proactive look at what efforts do we need to be funding and uh, what efforts do we need to actually get rid of and move to a vendor um, that it is represents their core competency? Do you think that all organizations go through this? I, I'll, I'll give you my context. I mean, I'm, I'm currently working for AquaSecurity. They're a high growth startup. And we were completely core focused, as you can imagine. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole idea of a startup is that you create something that is completely based on demand. And we are, you know, 100% focused on what that demand is. But as companies expand and the context around that grows, I guess it, there's a real risk of becoming like um, Parts Unlimited and you, you suddenly lose track of what's context and what's core. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I remember reading this famous uh, blog post by a famous investor, uh, Brad Feld. Uh, he's uh, part of the Foundry Ventures. I mean, I think it's one of the top uh, performing 
VC funds over the last uh, 30 years. Um, and there was this post that he wrote about how, um, you know, he actually recommended for certain companies of certain phases to actually bring um, data, you know, stuff back from the cloud, right? And now I think the, the mm. phrase was, you know, you can actually um, increase gross margins by, you know, 20 points because you can capitalize um, all those investments, uh, depreciate those capital investments over, you know, uh, three, four, five years uh, and, you know, have a, a great, um, you know, on the books, uh, make the business uh, look a lot better. And I remember bringing that to a friend of mine. Uh, he was at Microsoft at the time. And, you know, I, I said, well, you know, there's something that seems really wrong about that. And he said, absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, if you're it doesn't tell you is is the opportunity cost, right? In other words, you know, by managing, uh, you know, all the stuff in your own data centers, uh, you're having to hire all these infrastructure engineers, right? And often uh, that the opportunity cost is that that's all the, if those people were developers, they could actually be building features that the customer actually wanted. So I, th- I think that was a, a, just a great, uh, that was an aha moment for me in terms of, you know, what is really the opportunity cost of you know focusing on uh, things that are not core. So yeah, you look at it through the lens of uh, the financial statements that will tell you one story, and then you look at it you know, in mm-hmm. terms of opportunity costs and uh, our ability to build things that customers want to buy. Right, uh, that tells a different story. Yeah. So actually, I'm going to pause for a moment because we I started at the fifth ideal, and I realize I'm going backwards, uh, which was customer focus. So everybody who hadn't hadn't read the book yet and is interested in podcasts as a Hopefully not a spoiler, but uh, a, a teaser. Let's let's call it that. Uh, there are five ideals that you go through uh, throughout the book and and review and, and actually to certainly drive home. Um, and I was oddly enough, I was telling my wife about this book because I think there's a lot of <laughs> applicable. Uh, she is not in technology; she's a jewelry maker, so she has to hear me all my technology stories, regardless. And um, it reminded her of. Uh, of a review of a movie of the movie Jaws she saw once. And the title of the review was Jaws is not a movie about sharks. You know, it's a movie about companionship and all these other things that and mm. it's, it's like reading the unicorn project and saying, this is not a book about development. I found myself getting wrapped up in the story and the depth of the characters. And then it would, you'd very skillfully bring me back to the ideals and I go, Oh yeah, that's what I'm reading. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm <laughs> Yeah, in fact, um, by the way, just a a quick little segue on that. I mean, it is, uh, there was a point about a year ago where it was in the first sort of handover to uh, editing. And you look at sort of the 130,000 words that you write and you go, what is the point? (laughs) It's just a big pile of words (laughs) that say nothing. And and that actually led to, you know, the creation of the five ideals. So really anchored down, what is the point uh, of this book? What are the key lessons uh, that need to be conveyed to the reader? And uh, sort of after... You know, coming up with five ideals. And then it actually became easy to the point where it was like a sense of just almost existential relief because the task really became getting rid of everything that didn't have to do with the five ideals. <laughs> so wow. uh, that was actually a, a wonderful aha moment uh, in, the, in the creation of the book. Wow. Um, so I'll jump back in there and I'll, would, I'll, would I'll continue. Would it be worth saying my... what the five ideals are? Uh, maybe yeah, just to, oh, okay. Let's, let, let's, I'll let you introduce the five ideals. Go ahead. Yeah, for sure. So these are just uh, five uh, things that I just care a lot about uh, that I think are important for organizations uh, trying to win in the marketplace. Uh, the first ideal is locality and simplicity. Uh, the second ideal is focus, flow, and joy. The third ideal is uh, improvement of daily work. The fourth ideal is uh, psychological safety. And the fifth ideal, as we talked about, was uh, customer focus. And so 
the two-sentence uh, description of each one would be, first idea is locality and simplicity, is to what degree can teams or developers uh, develop, test, and deploy value to customers independently without having to communicate, coordinate, uh, and with scores of other teams in the organization. Um, second is the outcomes of that is to what extent uh, can we get a f- uh, focus in our daily work that leads to uh, flow and joy. And uh, you know, I think the goal is really have the best energies of every engineer uh, is to be able to solve the business problem as opposed to uh, dealing with uh, things outside of that business problem, like you know infrastructure, uh, like CI/CD pipelines, like figuring out logging. Right, these are things that ideally come through platforms that every developer just inherits uh, by using those platforms. Third is uh, improvement of daily work. Uh, this was explored in the Phoenix project, and the notion is that improvement of daily work is actually more important than daily work itself. And so that has a lot to do with technical debt, uh, how we pay that down, and uh, create the conditions where we can have locality and simplicity to have focus, flow, and joy in our daily work. Fourth is psychological safety. Uh, this was explored in the state of DevOps research, uh, just showing that psychological safety is one of the prerequisites uh, for culture, for innovation, uh, for performance, as uh, whether it's organizational performance or uh, software delivery performance. And fifth ideal is uh, you know customer focus. And, and I like the fact that it sort of comes last. It really does say suggest that kind of as a technology leader, our job is to create the first four so that we can actually focus on the customer. And uh, focusing on the customer for those things um, may not actually be as productive as we think. Hmm. I think sometimes focusing on one can let another one slide sometimes, uh, but they're certainly overlapping. They heavily overlap, I think. I mean, from my own personal perspective and thinking about core versus context and customer focus, the fifth ideal, uh, knowing that what I'm doing is relevant to a customer used to give me the second and fourth ideal, the focus, <laughs> yeah. flow, and joy, and the psychological safety to know that I was doing something that was going to make a difference. <laughs> and it's interesting, I found that's certainly not all alone. I mean, the, if we skip backwards to the psychological safety, the fourth ideal, I think that's absolutely critical and something in a lot of organizations um, that I've heard about. I have colleagues who've worked in organizations where that ability to be able to say what you think without feeling that something bad might happen as a result or there wasn't a blame culture in place, is that's really important to get the best out of people. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I, one of the aha moments I had while working on the Unicorn Project was uh, exactly as you mentioned around the notion of psychological safety. So p- part of the, one of the most visible and probably famous examples of improvement of daily work is the Toyota Andon Cord. So, you know, I think almost everyone these days knows that in the Toyota production system, on top of every work center, there's a cord that everyone's trained to pull when something goes wrong. So if I create a defective part, uh, I pull the cord. If I get a defective part from someone else, I pull the cord. If I don't have anything to work on, I pull the cord, even if the work takes longer than documented. Uh, I remember learning in 2011 during this training I took uh, with uh, Mike Rother at the University of Michigan, in a typical Toyota plant, the Andon cord is pulled 3,500 times a day, which is just shocking, right? It's just, (laughs) it's so disruptive. Why would they do it so often? And it's really... This um, deeply held belief and this conviction that uh, you know, if you don't fix problems then and there, technical debt will accumulate, making problems more difficult, more expensive, maybe even impossible to fix. And in the absence of fixing it, you have these daily workarounds where if you don't fix the problem then and there, you have the same problem 55 seconds later. Uh, but it, it sort of struck me uh, last year and the, the key thing that's often spoke, uh, unspoken there is this uh, need for psychological safety. Um, 
that it, it's been well documented that in many automotive plants, primarily General Motors, that uh, you know they installed the andon cord, but uh, of course no one pulled the andon cord because whenever someone does, they get yelled at because the managers would come screaming because uh, they jeopardize their daily production targets. And so really key to that is the notion of psychological safety, and that's reinforced all the time. The first thing that happens when uh, anyone pulls the andon cord is the supervisor comes and uh, thanks them for, for pulling the cord. And so I think the that notion of uh, psychological safety is uh, uh, not as explicitly talked about, uh, even in the famous uh, Toyota Andon Cord. Yeah, well, it's interesting at the very beginning when Maxine is uh, sent to the Phoenix Project, uh, her, one of her first instructions is to keep her head down and stay in her lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does, that doesn't sound like psychological safety right out of the box. <laughs> right, right. I think uh, so. Chris, the VP of R&D, just implores her, stay in your lane, don't rock the boat, uh, stay below the radar screen. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. like, uh, okay. I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to pull any corns then, am I? Exactly right. And I think uh, that first whole third of the book was really uh, meant to represent, I think, what is all too common in organizations where uh, I think that really typifies the norm is that um, there isn't a what Dr. Ron Westrom uh, called a generative culture that uh, instead it was a pathological culture where people are afraid to tell bad news, uh, people are discouraged to bridge between teams, novelty is discouraged. Uh, he, he came up, there's another archetype uh, in the middle that he called uh, bureaucratic cultures where the notion is that processes protect and create a merciful or just culture. Uh, but then uh, the notion of generative cultures is uh, a culture where we actively seek information we train messengers to tell bad news. We encourage bridging between teams. And we seek novelty because we know that, that the problems that still exist are the tough ones that uh, if were easy, it would have been solved already. And so Dr. Ron Westrom's uh, yeah, amazing contribution to healthcare was that observation that it was culture that was one of the top uh, was highly correlated with patient outcomes. Um, and, and so that instrument, the Westrom organizational typology model, is something that we tested extensively in the state of DevOps report, uh, the work I did with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble. That's a six-year-long study spanning 30,000 respondents, uh, just showing the culture absolutely is a predictor for performance. I think uh, you've created quite an extensive reading list in your bibliography. Uh, I know <laughs> yeah. you're... Thanks, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if, if I, I'm gonna, I'll pause in the middle of the ideals and ask how much of you is in this book? Because it, there's a lot of you in the Maxine character in terms of her love of closure, for example. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and closure is a, the functional programming language that runs on the JVM and invented by Rich Hickey. Absolutely. Uh, my favorite programming language. Yeah, I mean, even even towards the end, there's like a final lesson on functional programming and a little bit of a, in case I hadn't mentioned that I like this, here's another bit of a little dose of it for you. Um, and I don't know it. I'm inspired to go and have a play with it, which is awesome. I, I, yeah, so where does the book come from and how much is uh, of me is in the book? Yeah, um, yeah, so I think primarily the book is inspired by and certainly dedicated to uh, the DevOps enterprise community. So, uh, you know, my area of passion for the last uh, seven years has been studying um, how large complex organizations are embracing all of these principles and practices that were invented at the tech giants, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and using it at scale. And so the story is very much uh, modeled after 
so many of the common elements of the transformations that are highlighted in the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And so all of those uh, videos for the seven years of the conference, I've run them since 2014, are in six years, seven years, 2014. Yeah, um, we're in year number six. Uh, all of those are available on YouTube. And for me, the Maxine character is, is the one that really, she's so much inspired by uh, some of my experiences as a developer. And uh, the Phoenix Project was really told from the operations perspective. And so for almost 25 years of my career, uh, I've really self-identified as an ops person, uh, despite getting my graduate degree in compiler design and high-speed networking. And yeah, I think I've always been attracted to operations because it was my observation that it was in ops where the saves were made. It was ops who saved customers from terrible developers who kept on blowing everything up in production. <laughs> you know, um, it was ops who really protected systems and data despite ineffective security people. But it was actually after learning closure that brought the joy of development back into my life. And that happened about three years ago. And that's very uh, coincident with the uh, where the majority of the writing uh, for the Unicorn Project happened. And so, so much of uh, Maxine's uh, values um, and the way she likes to work and her view of the world was really informed <laughs> by sort of my aha moments uh, as, you know, I, I started becoming a developer again. Awesome. And it was good to see her, uh, Brent was back because um, at the end <laughs> of the Phoenix Project, I felt like I knew Brent and I'd worked with Brent and I came out of this one actually with a slightly changed opinion when I realized he was part of the rebellion and he's actually <laughs> on our side. And, and I thought, oh, I actually quite, not that I didn't like Brent, but yeah, it, it was nice to see that character get developed into something that you could relate to. It's not somebody who was both the hero and the villain uh, simultaneously in the <laughs> Phoenix Project. But also someone who you, who was, who was actually more of an anti-hero and uh, you realize in the Phoenix project because he was there in the behind the scenes making it happen. Yeah. And it was so fun. I mean, uh, in the Phoenix project, Brent is one of the few people who, um, as, as you can imagine, most of the characters were sort of a synthesis of many people we all observed over the last uh, decades of our experience. Uh, Brent was the one character whose name, uh, we did not change. Brent was actually a colleague of, uh, <laughs> one of my fellow co-authors, Kevin Bear, um, and, uh, you know, Brent was a person who no outage could be fixed without him. No major piece of work could get done without him. Um, you know, the bus, he was the bus factor of one, right? If Brent got hit by a bus, <laughs> the entire organization yeah. be in <laughs> grave jeopardy. And it was really fun in the Unicorn Project to, uh, really show the other side of Brent, right? What are Brent's goals, dreams, and aspirations? You know, what does Brent really want to do? And uh, just, uh, his place in the rebellion. Uh, it was just really fun to sort of show that part. Oh, I'm sorry, but my, one of my favorite scenes was uh, during the big Phoenix rollout, uh, you know, that huge catastrophe that it was, that uh, in addition to the database schema change that takes, you know, six and a half hours <laughs> to, yep. to execute, uh, Brent actually has to stop working on that because like something even more terrible happened, which was that all the prices disappeared from the e-commerce oh, yeah. site in the mobile app <laughs> due to a byte order mark showing up in the CSV files, uh, which actually did happen to me. <laughs> so. I was going to say, that one felt very personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, Maxine uh, is really offended by this because not that it happened, but that Brent has to wake up in the middle of the night to deal with these type of errors. And, and so she... You know, she cares a lot about that. We have to put the system in place so that Brent isn't the only person who can diagnose and fix these type of errors. Excellent. And that takes us very nicely into the third ideal of improving daily work. Yeah. Um, you, I've heard in a few of the other podcasts, and I, I think it's worth mentioning again. I think it's, is it the uh, Satya Nadella quote of choosing dev productivity over features? Oh. <laughs> um, if you want to expand on that, go nuts, because I really like it. 
Yeah, I, I think um, for me, one of the many, but uh, one of the certainly largest aha moments for me was around technical debt. Um, it's so interesting to me to see that technical debt has killed almost every one of the tech giants, um, mm-hmm. maybe during numerous parts of their uh, evolution. <clears throat> so if you look at you know eBay in the late 90s and early 2000s, you take a look at uh, Microsoft during the uh, summer of worms where uh, they actually went through a year-long uh, security stand-down where Bill Gates wrote the famous memo that said, if a developer ever has to choose between building a feature or fixing a security defect, you must fix the security defect because this represents an existential threat to the company. And this led to uh, a year where uh, every product group, Windows, Office, SQL Server, Exchange, <laughs> right, uh, they all stopped working on features in order to uh, fix and address security issues. Um, I like the sound of that. Uh, yeah, Amazon, um, <clears throat> the famous Jeff Bezos memo where uh, he decrees that n- the only way that teams will talk to each other is through APIs, right? That was part of uh, the major refactoring that uh, allowed them to uh, break up the Abidos monolith um, because that was a single bottleneck for where all the display logic and where all the scalability concerns were, you know, all recommendations engine, all, all, all sort of uh, jammed up into Abidos. Um, Google, the birth of the automated test culture, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Etsy. So all these organizations were almost killed by technical debt and they all did the same thing. Uh, just like Microsoft, they brought feature uh, velocity down to zero so that they could pay down technical debt and uh, invest in the replatforming so that they could increase developer productivity, increase scalability, security, reliability, and so forth. And uh, as you mentioned, yeah, that the pinnacle of that in my mind is a Satya Nadella quote, the CEO of Microsoft saying, if a developer ever has to choose between a feature or working on dev productivity, always choose dev productivity. And I think it's such a great statement because it really does show that in the tech giants, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, they really put their best engineers on dev productivity because they are playing the forever game, right? They, uh, this is an investment uh, that will pay off for every activity they take on in the future. Uh, whereas technical debt is the opposite, <laughs> left unaddressed, this will actually uh, you know, decrease our ability to work forever in the future. And is it worth, uh, seeing as we're talking about improving daily work, just uh, for anybody who's for, who read the Phoenix Project ages ago and is not like me going to go and reread it before you read the new one, um, defining the four types of work? Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. So the four types of work in the um, Phoenix Project were business projects, uh, IT the, the initiatives, ones. yep, <laughs> and, uh, infrastructure changes, and unplanned work. And, and what that really represented was kind of what silos and what systems record this work. So business projects are, you know, that's a capital activity that's tracked through finance. Infrastructure improvement projects uh, rarely get tracked anywhere um, centrally, mm-hmm. right? They typically get done at the silo level. You know, infrastructure changes typically get done in the ticketing systems and unplanned work you know, often is not recorded anywhere really, except for in kind of break fix tickets um, and uh, done wrong break fix issues, unplanned work actually dominate daily work. And so uh, that is kind of the context of which improvement of daily work is uh, referred to in the Phoenix Project. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I didn't bring this up explicitly in the Unicorn Project, but uh, there's kind of an equivalent of the four types of work uh, that I subscribe to. And that comes from Dr. McKirsten's book, Project to Product. Uh, and he's the one I mentioned in the context of the CompuWare visit. But he created this wonderful thing called the flow framework. And it is the four types of work that are comprehensively exhaustive, mutually exclusive. Um, and uh, it just does a wonderful job in sort of elevating technical debt. So it's like the, fourth, the four types of work are features, defects, debts, 
and risks. Um, and it's this wonderful model that says, you know, if you're not paying down technical debt, if you're not investing, if you're putting 100% of your efforts on features and <laughs> leaving no time for uh, fixing defects or paying down technical debt or managing risks like security or reliability, uh, the outcome is obvious, right? You'll be just like eBay 1999. You'll be like Amazon 2003, Microsoft 2002, <laughs> right? Um, there must be some sort of judicious amount of time spent on paying down technical debt. And if you don't, then technical debt will uh, become 100%. Uh, and so that's just a I'd say roughly, uh, very much like the four types of work are in the Phoenix project. I think the flow framework and its four types of work really brilliantly describe the types of work that are done in a development and in, in any engineering organization. Excellent. So I'm going to, before I go on to the second ideal, because uh, I distracted you with the four types of work, I'm going to ask you just a little question about the book again, because as I was trying to describe, I'm afraid that many of my questions come from my discussions with my wife about uh, <laughs> about your book. And one of them was, and I mentioned this briefly to you last week, about how the parallel timelines between the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project had me picking up the Phoenix Project to just check certain, <laughs> I'm not, not that I'm checking your continuity, but I was just checking things, and it, and which must, A, must have been a nightmare, so please tell me how, how hard that was, and second... I was desperately trying to find another example of something similar. And the only thing I could think of was the, the book or the play or the, uh, Hamlet and the movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern hmm. are dead. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but it's Hamlet. Yeah, I actually never. Yeah, the one that uh, came to my mind, it was Ender's Shadow. Um uh, by Orson Scott Card, uh, very so told from the perspective of Bean as opposed to uh, Ender, uh, which is uh, the ah. central character in Ender's Game. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, you're right. Uh, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Absolutely, the same uh, technique. Uh, yeah, and it, it's funny that you mentioned that um, the, the flipping back and forth between Unicorn Project and Fiends Project. Uh, I actually created a spreadsheet um, early on of the timeline, and uh, it was actually surprisingly difficult to sort of reconstruct everything kind of uh, accurately, <laughs> you know, sort of after the fact. As much work as I did doing that to make sure that, uh, you know, those kind of constraints were uh, obeyed and that we didn't break canon. Uh, uh, the uh, During the editing process, uh, two editors both found significant problems in the timeline <laughs> that, you know, actually did cause me to sort of uh, slap myself on the forehead saying, holy, oh, oh no. <laughs> right? that, that's just having to require, in, in some cases, some significant rewrites. So, uh, in the Unicorn Project, uh, we actually do include a timeline. <laughs> so, for the uh, yeah. reader, they can actually uh, uh, reconcile the two, um, leveraging our work so they don't have to do it themselves. <laughs> Well, that was the first thing I opened. I, I mean, I went right, I went all the way, I went to, well, I went to the table of contents first, and then I saw there was a timeline and thought, joy, went to the end and started reading through all the different things that were happening. And that's, <laughs> that's awesome. That was, that was my own um, downfall, because that's what made me go run and grab Phoenix Project and have them side by side as I was going through, <laughs> uh, which does make the Unicorn Project a much longer read um, for anybody who's going, getting to tackle it. Uh, avoid the timeline, read it afterwards, if you ever want to finish it. <laughs> I feel bad. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, I think one of the goals was to make it so that it was a, it could be read as a standalone book. Oh, it and, can. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like I always feel bad and guilty when someone said uh, I felt compelled to read, uh, reread the Phoenix Project. 
uh, you know, last thing they want to do is incur work uh, for someone <laughs> you know, that they didn't ask for. Uh, unplanned work. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's jump back. Let's jump to the second ideal, focus, flow, and joy, uh, and feedback loops, et cetera. So give me a description of, of that from the book, if that's possible. Yeah, for sure. I, um, you know, I, th- I think the best way to explain this one is uh, to reference the work of uh, Dr. Mihaly Chisent Mahalyi. So uh, you may recognize his name uh, from the amazing TED Talk he gave, which I think is the mm-hmm. best TED Talk ever uh, about flow, the the state of optimal uh, psychology. And, uh, and he describes flow as a state where we are so immersed in the work that we're doing that we're enjoying the work so much that we lose track of time and maybe even sense of self, right? That transcendental experience that we feel when we are just truly engrossed uh, in our work. And uh, yeah, coming back to coding, I mean, it just uh, it made me realize that you now that's really that experience, that uh, moments like that are, I think, attracts so much of us to technology in the first place. And learning closure really helped me sort of achieve that state of flow where I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you're banging on all cylinders, you're using every skill and ability, you're not, uh, you're not getting mired in the muck of uh, uh, what it's sometimes called one-shot learning. So two types of learning. One type of learning is the learning that we value because we're building upon decades of experience and learnings. We value the learning because uh, we may be we have a sense that we're going to be using for decades to come. So that's uh, really the learning that we enjoy. Uh, other type of learning is the exact opposite. It's called one-shot learning. Uh, so these are the things that we learn about, not because we want to, but because we have to. <laughs> In the middle of an outage, right? Uh, we're Googling Stack Overflowing, trying to figure out how to make this problem go away. Uh, we're trying to learn how to escape uh, spaces and file names inside of make files, <laughs> relearn the command line arguments to crony versus cron, <laughs> vixicron, right? I mean, these are things that uh, you didn't wake up in the morning uh, setting out to solve these problems. These are ones that just sort of came up in our work and now we're forced to solve them. And so for me, what I found with, you know, an aha moment was how much we want to stay in the state of flow and how much working on things outside of our application break flow. There's this huge economic cost to regain flow once you've lost it. And, uh, and I think to me that one of the key learnings and aha moments was that this is why development platforms are so important is that for operations, infrastructure, security, QA, we want the expertise not in people's heads, not locked in the silo. We need them in the platforms that developers use in the daily work so that they automatically inherit the best known ways to solve problems and secure things and run them reliably and deploy things uh, in a repeatable way so that we don't have to learn uh, how to make properly formed YAML configuration files, right? That this is just <laughs> done for us. And you know, we want to use these highly opinionated platforms that the domain experts give to us. Um, and yeah, I just find that uh, when you do that, uh, you stay in that state of creative flow uh, more often, <laughs> and you don't have to pay these huge penalties um, of learning things that you don't really want to solve, um, learning things that you don't really want to learn. So uh, it leads to more productivity, more happiness, more joy, um, and state of DevOps research has shown that uh, it's great for organizational performance as well, right? Uh, to what mm-hmm. extent do these organizations that create these conditions exceed profitability, market share, and productivity goals, uh, you know, have workplace engagement, uh, recommend their organizations as a great place to work to their family and friends, right? So, uh, yeah, that was uh, one of the, certainly one of the big aha moments uh, for me 
rediscovering the joy of coding. And that was why it was so important to me that it showed up in the book in the second ideal of focus, flow, and joy. Do you think there's a there's a callback if we if, and and thankfully actually you've listened to the Kelsey Hightower yeah. podcast because he talks a lot about um, creating a sort of a ubiquitous technology that enables us to have that flow on top and he actually used the example in the podcast like we didn't have to create the internet so we could have this podcast it's just <laughs> it's just a layer that's there for us to to then use this and, and enjoy it. And it's interesting to take that as a such a that was a pretty grand holistic um, perspective when he was talking about how Kubernetes might disappear, not disappear, but not be so much uh, on the forefront. And to think that internally within an organization, you can take that same opinion and you can create an infrastructure that can allow developers to just develop, right. do the things <laughs> right. that they enjoy. And just to put that into context, I mean, anyone who's seen uh, Kelsey Hightower talk and do one of his demos. I mean, it is a tour de force, right? It is a, <laughs> uh, it, it generates awe and admiration and amazement. Um, and, and for me also intimidation, right? It's like, oh, yeah. oh my gosh. And it's, uh, it generates for me all those things. But now my primary reaction is like, and I don't want to know any of that, right? It's like, I don't want to know how to, I can't remember how to deploy SSL certificates uh, across the Kubernetes cluster. And I don't want to know how to uh, generate Kubernetes deployment YAML files, right? I just want it to be done for me because I don't care, right? I don't, um, I don't want to pick a metrics uh, and logging framework, right? Just give one to me. Just yeah. <laughs> show me how to use it and I'll use it. Uh, I don't even want to connect to databases. Please connect it for me and I'll use whatever you give me, right? So uh, yeah. I think uh, uh, for me, I, I think my reaction you know, is, is really to say, all right, um, I want to be taken care of by the Kelsey Hightower of the world and I want to benefit yes. from all the um, of their creations uh, because that is so far afield to the things that I want to spend my time working on. Uh, and it's not out of it. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that it's probably the most important work on the planet, right? It is as important as the features we try to build. Uh, but thank goodness there are Kelsey Hightowers of the world building the platforms that developers can use so that you know, we can benefit from their expertise. Yes, excellent. Okay, so I'm going to... Oh, can I give you a, a, just a quick oh, story? Go for, <laughs> so, go for it, go for it. Yeah, I remember when I learned Kubernetes uh, four years ago, and uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Flynn, helped me learn, sort of John Willis and so forth. But, I mean, it was so daunting, right? I mean, I, I remember, like, how do I get a shell uh, from a container image running inside of Kubernetes? And I could, I could remember them doing it, and I know it was like cube control, cube cuddle, something, 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 but I don't even know what to Google for, right? I mean, like, right. I literally sitting down at the command line and not knowing what to type and no clue on like what even to Google for. I mean, that that is like a tough hill to climb, right? And so, you know, I, I am totally bought into Kelsey's vision that, uh, you know, the days where we have to learn uh, the Kubernetes uh, internals in order to do our work uh, will hopefully come to an end and, and we'll all be in a better place for it. Excellent. Um, <laughs> yes, we will be. And I agree with you. I like taking advantage of the, not taking advantage of the Kelsey Hightowers. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? But uh, yes, allowing the uh, them to create these wonderful environments that then we can just use to enjoy ourselves. The first ideal, now, let's, let's end at the beginning. Uh, locality and simplicity, hmm. correct? Um, and I wrote... Yes. I wrote some abstract notes on this that are not from the book, but I'll let you define it first, and then I'll throw some questions about it. Hi, oh, Art. Yeah. <clears throat> the first ideal is uh, locality and simplicity. So, you know, I had mentioned that the 
the ideal really tries to embody the notion that to what extent are teams able to independently develop, test, and deploy value to customers. Um, and I love, you know, just like the bus factor measures to what extent, how many people need to be hit by a bus for the project service or organization to be in grave jeopardy, right? Brent represented the bus factor of one. Yeah. Kind of the, the, the equivalent metric for the first ideal is the lunch factor. In order to get something done, how many people do you need to take out to lunch? Is it the Amazon ideal of the two pizza team? Or is it, uh, do you have to take the entire building out to lunch um, in order for them to get you on the schedule and uh, prioritize together sequence, marshal, deconflict, and so forth? Uh, you know, complex deployments that involve 200 people, right? That's a, that's a lunch factor of 200. So ideally, right, the, the lunch factor is very low. Um, you know, maybe it's the Amazon ideal of that two-pizza team. And uh, I think another uh, you know, characteristic of the first ideal is to what extent can you develop if you want to build something, to what extent can you deploy it and test it independently, right? Um, in the opposite of the first ideal, you know, everything must be tested in the presence of every other component. <laughs> so maybe in an integrated test environment. And that means you can't actually test independently, which means that you're now coupled to everybody else. Um, and I think that's kind of another element of the first ideal is to what degree do teams have the authority and capability to do what the customer wants, right? Um, so the ideal is that decisions can be made within the team, right? No other uh, approvals needed. You know, the worst is uh, in the unicorn project, uh, we call it the square, right? Uh, for every decision, you have to go up to in the org chart, over to and down to. And sometimes you even have to do the return path for two engineers to work together to solve a problem. And I think that you know, maybe lastly, it also applies not just for code, but data as well. To what extent do teams and uh, developers have access to the data they need uh, in order to do their work? Um, they can get it on demand, you know, self-service, just like any other thing that you expect in a DevOps pipeline. Uh, not ideal is that every new piece of data you need, uh, you have to wait six to nine months for the integration teams to get ready or the data warehouses to, uh, to you know, generate the new report or implement the schema change. And, you know, that takes nine months, just like it used to take nine months to deploy code into production. So those are, uh, that's really the kind of the characteristics of the first idea of locality and simplicity. And that was so much influenced and inspired by the work of Rich Hickey, the inventor of the closure programming language. And he used a word complected, right? You, you want right. simple I things. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Simple things, meaning uh, they're not complected or, you know, or intertwined with other pieces. So four pieces of yarn that hang independently is far better than four pieces of yarn that are braided together where you can't change one piece of yarn without having to affect and change three other pieces of yarn that, you know, if sufficiently knotted, you simply can't. Uh, it's it's interesting. Locality and simplicity is something that I probably, I feel like I've seen, I've seen every version of it. I mean, I guess part of my job is, uh, is <laughs> acting as a security architect, but for people, for vendors that I get, uh, glimpses into 20, 30, 50 different companies a year describing their development process to me so that we can talk about how security can be applied. And yes. as these sort of how, how many people do you need to, to bring to lunch or the two pizza idea uh, has 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 been working and it has been making people uh, more efficient and, and, and better in the industry. Um, I've been finding that it's actually made security really hard <laughs> yeah. because the security yeah. teams... They can't find the, the eight people who are doing this who have the authority and the autonomy to make this one thing happen because they don't know where they are and they don't know if they actually know how to secure the thing that they're doing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, yeah, so true. And, and I think from a security perspective, uh, it is 
one of the characteristics that is most jeopardized by complexedness or complexity, the absence of simplicity. Because if things can be tested in isolation, right, uh, then you can actually make certain claims about, you know, its security attributes. Uh, but if everything depends on everything else and it must be tested in the presence of everything else, which all must be configured properly, <laughs> right, in order for those, uh, you know, attestations or um, claims to be true, uh, th- uh, yeah, that's a pretty fragile claim about security. So, you know, I think security is actually one of the biggest benefits. And as you said, right, um, the challenge for security is how do you integrate into everyone's daily work uh, so that, you know, ideally they're using the secure platform so that everyone can benefit, you know, whether it's a container or an application or infrastructure as code, right? Ideally, we're all using uh, the best known images or the best known tests that security can come up with. And those are integrated into a development pipeline so that anyone using that pipeline will inherit the best known ways to secure infrastructure and applications. Um, That's the ideal, right? And interestingly enough, we're talking about Kubernetes. I mean, I think the sidecar uh, which is something that I found initially incomprehensible, but that is such a huge benefit for security, right? It means that mm-hmm. you can actually touch these cross-cutting concerns without actually having to modify each container and workloads. I mean, that that's a, I think a, a huge advance for security. Yeah, that's a there's a whole other podcast there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, excellent. Uh, sorry, but then I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, no, it's just yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, so if you look at the genesis of that concept, uh, a lot of it came from something called aspect-oriented programming, um, where that notion is, you know, how do you how do you take these cross-cutting concerns and put them in one place so you can touch it in one place and then automatically, you know, um, uh, influence all of its the things who depend upon it. And so that was a basis of Aspect J, uh, Spring uh, used aspect-oriented programming, and the Kubernetes sidecar, you know, say what you want about it, whether that's actually the right level or not. I mean, I think it is a very powerful concept where for certain cross-cutting concerns like security, logging, authentication, right, that's a perfect place for it. So just uh, when I learned about that and fully understood that in Kubernetes, I mean, that was a, also a sort of a big aha moment for me. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's, um, and I didn't mean to, so earlier when I talked about locality and simplicity making, I don't want to say it, security harder, um, because it brings with it a new level of, of security capability. And because there, there's a lot of, some of them, I guess, meetup talks that I have to do, where I, I talk about using these kind of, well, I'll use your, your phrase, these ideals, uh, sometimes mean that you need to rethink how you're doing security in these sorts of ways. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. In fact, uh, a friend of mine, Tomer Gershoni, uh, he was a chief product security officer at uh, HPE. And he said, uh, you know, one of his biggest aha moments was that if it's not represented in the JIRA ticketing system, the work might as well not exist. <laughs> and so it was just a very different way of like, how we used to run things, which were through GRC systems, right? And art, things like Archer, right? That's where all the work existed. And, you know, his essentially what he's saying is that, yeah, you can put anything you want into the GRC system, but if it's not uh, inside of a ticket inside of Jira, right? Um, you're a long way. It might as well not exist because it's not actually in the work systems that developers use in their daily work. So, We've gone through the, the five ideals, and I realize I've had you on here for a long time. I'm just looking at the clock <laughs> thinking, oh, my goodness, sorry. Um, that I told you I wrote six pages of notes. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and wrap it up uh, with two things. Um, one, there was a quote uh, in the Unicorn Project that I loved, uh, and it's Kurt, where uh, I'm trying to remember the context. Uh, but essentially, and I wrote it in my notes, he said, we're doing this so that we can be better prepared for the next crisis when we will be equally ignorant of entirely mm. new things that are just as important and will be just as obvious in hindsight. And I thought, yeah, 
I love that quote. I might get that on a t-shirt except it's very long. Yeah. <laughs> but it almost yeah, provides justification for the John all Allspa. five ideas. Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Really? No, in fact, no, no, no. It's actually someone who was at Etsy. It was, uh, I think, Ian Malpass uh, from uh, DevOps Days talk that he did in Minneapolis. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, one of the key, uh, this is as he was describing the postmortem uh, process at Etsy. Uh, one of the key goals was to, exactly as you said, prepare for a future where we are as ignorant <laughs> and as careless uh, and unprepared as we are. Right. And I thought that was just the, uh, uh, just a wonderful verbalization of the mindset of well, why we do blameless postmortems, why we do these, uh, you know, retrospectives for that scenario, um, proactively preparing for that situation at 3 a.m. <laughs> where we're, we are equally lost um, and uh, trying to make sense of what's happening around us. I think both directly and indirectly, it speaks to so many of the ideals that you're trying, that you're conveying in the book. It was really, it was really good. It really hit home for me. <laughs> uh, and so, finally, I think, unless unless there's something that you really want to talk about that I've missed, um, you're kind of uh, at risk of becoming one of these. Um, let's well, let's call them senseis that you're quoting in your own book. That in, in someone else's book, in five years, you're going to be the Eric character that is. <laughs> That is, that is conveying all of these wonderful ideals and, and types of work and all the different sort of lessons that we've learned by reading the Phoenix Project uh, and the, Uniform, the Unicorn Project. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying that. It's really, they're, they're two really good pieces of work. I am a little bit curious as to where you're going to go now. Is there going to be a, a third timeline? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, but something that has come up a lot um, over the last couple of months is the notion of the Sarah character. So, you know, for those who don't know, right, Sarah's sort of the villain uh, in the Phoenix Project, the SVP of retail operations, um, you know, and, uh, you know, she shows up in the Unicorn Project again with even more Sarah characteristics than before, with even more powerful friends, <laughs> right? A yeah. very powerful board member who, uh, you know, has a great deal of influence in terms of the company direction. And um, a lot of people made a comment of uh, making, and they pointed out, the interaction between Maxine and Sarah in the epilogue, uh, just painting, uh, you know, that uh, the line was, you know, Maxine meets with Sarah after she leaves his company and it was nothing like she thought it would be. And she's actually looking forward to their next lunch. And uh, a lot of people said about that is the reaction was that Sarah wasn't a villain. She might be cartoon-like or a caricature of villains, but, uh, you know, there is actually a plausible reason why she acts the way she does. But it does beg the question like, why does she act the way she does? And the one thing that I really want to explore is, um, you know, what is her background? Um, what does her bookshelf look like? <laughs> what exactly, concretely, were her motivations? And it's something that uh, I actually am quite unprepared to talk about. Um, and I'm looking forward to a series of conversations uh, with Elizabeth Hendrickson, one of my mentors for many years. Uh, she just left Pivotal after, uh, yeah, I think, six plus years uh, there. Uh, Mike Nygaard, the author of the uh, famous and awesome release it book and uh, Peter Moore, the, actually the brother of Dr. Joffrey Moore uh, from Zones to Win. And, uh, and I think the goal of, of those interactions, I think, will really be to uh, describe in more detail um, why Sarah behaves the way she does uh, and how do we better work with people like Sarah or uh, maybe more probably how do we better compete with people like Sarah so that uh, our ideas ultimately win uh, in that internal marketplace of ideas and so that we can better get the ears of people that matter uh, versus uh, the ideas of Sarah. So that's something I, I will definitely paint as an aspiration to better understand uh, in the years to come. 
That sounds that sounds like a really good idea. I think people would really appreciate that sort of definition uh, for sure. Like one of the the very first podcast I did actually in this series, I spoke with Andy Martin, and he, he spoke a lot about uh, empathy and yeah. trying to understand the way people think. And no no one's out there to get you. Most of the time. <laughs> and Sarah so. might be a little bit different because I mean, she actually might be out to get <laughs> you. Might, yeah. but, uh, yeah, but still, right, what, what are her goals and aspirations and you know, what are the things that she wants? And I uh, was able to convince Steve, the CEO, right, that this right. was actually the plan to take. So, so I think you know, the more we can explicitly talk about that um, and be able to understand that with empathy, understanding, and maybe even a bit of compassion, <laughs> right? yeah. uh, that can't be a bad thing. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, Gene, uh, is there anything I missed? Holy cow, I can't think of anything. That was a, a masterful interview spanning an incredible breadth of topics. I can't think of a thing, Steve. That was Good. great. Uh, thank you for having the patience to go through my massive list of notes. Thank you for writing these two books and for educating <laughs> myself and so many people. I was at a meetup the other day, and I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you. And the first thing, and I think that he must have been 23 years old, he said, I wrote the goal. And I thought, awesome. It's, that, it's so the influence I think that you're having is, is incredible. It's positive. And I, I think you should keep on doing what you're doing. I'm excited to see uh, what you do next. Well, hey, thank you so much for your kind words and your support and uh, uh, helping spread these ideas. So it was, it's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much. And that is another episode of Beer Sec Ops. Beer Sec Ops is powered by Aqua Security and assisted immensely by Shirley Fried and edited by Taylor Sattler. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.